In April 2019, Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein became something of a local celebrity. He was the leader of the Chabad of Poway, a synagogue that was the target of an anti-Semitic attack. One congregant died and several were injured, including Goldstein. He was shot in his right hand, losing a finger. He appeared on national broadcasts, met President Donald Trump, and spoke at the UN advocating for peace. However, more than a year later, Goldstein no longer has that moral agency, as he's now pleaded guilty of a multi-million dollar fraud scheme that goes back to the 80s. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Greg Moran, you cover legal affairs for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and you've been following this story for some time. Let's kind of set the stage first. Can you give us a recap of the events that really pushed Rabbi Goldstein into the center stage in San Diego? Sure. So it was uh, it goes back to uh, Passover 2019, a, a beautiful spring day in San Diego, and uh, interrupted by a, a very shocking event when a uh, young man named John Ernest drove uh, from his home in uh, Penisquitos, I think, or Bernardo, uh, over to the Chabad of Poway uh, with tactical gear on uh, and a uh, rifle. Uh, and lots of ammunition burst into the uh, synagogue uh, while services were ongoing at the, probably the holiest day of the Jewish uh, calendar uh, and opened fire. Um, we ended up killing one person, Lori Gilbert Kay. She said injuring three others, terrorizing an entire congregation, 50, 60 people, I think, in there at the time. Probably would have done more damage, but either his gun jammed or he had problem reloading it. Some congregants rushed him, uh, and uh, he fled in his car and gave up right away and, and has been arrested and is now charged in both state and federal court for crimes related uh, to, the, to that shooting. The, that incident really propelled this very small uh, congregation, kind of tucked away in the Poway RB area, um, into the national spotlight, uh, sparked a large conversation about hate and intolerance particularly among young uh, white males, uh, the annual gun control uh, debate, but also uh, made uh, Rabbi Goldstein, as you said, a, a figure of uh, international uh, renown, really. Uh, he, uh, his conduct after uh, the shooting, he was uh, beneficent, he was forgiving, he was eloquent, uh, did not uh, preach revenge or, or retribution, but forgiveness and and love and things like that really earned him a lot of notoriety and uh we did a special episode kind of recapping those events a year ago that i'll make sure to include in the show notes so you can kind of compare what we hear from goldstein at the time so fast forward to this year lay out the case the prosecutors made against goldstein what exactly is this scheme it uh, it's uh, elaborate. Uh, it is wide-ranging. Uh, it's got uh, tremendous scope, and it's been long-running. Um, and there are there are several schemes. So essentially, what he pleaded guilty to and was charged with overall yesterday was a, a long string of uh, serial frauds that uh, can be summed up in, in three or four broad ways. One was, and, and a big one was, something that's called the ninety ten fraud which is uh, uh, he would uh, uh, recruit or accept donations, large donations from donors to the Chabad. The Chabad is a religious organization, is a charity, and therefore any donations to it are tax deductible. He would uh, accept, let's say, 
you give uh, I give the about a hundred thousand dollars, write a check. He would uh, uh, give me a receipt on Habad stationery that would say thank you very much for your generous tax deductible contribution of hundred thousand dollars to the Habad. Make sure you keep this tax deductible record for your uh, accounting purposes and tell your accountant you have made a tax deductible donation. He would also give back ninety thousand dollars under the table, keeping ten percent back for himself. This uh, did two things. It earned him $10,000 or whatever 10% of the increment of the donation was. It gave the donors uh, a sizable tax deduction and allowed them to claim a $100,000 tax deduction in this example while only putting, putting out really $10,000. Um, that was a very long running fraud. Uh, the charging documents total that amount to about $6 million. That involved uh, individuals, uh, some people apparently in the congregation, others not. Uh, so that was the main one. The other one was he did, uh, he would defrauded uh, both the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the California uh, Office of Emergency Sur Services out of grants and reimbursements. Uh, one particularly egregious one, I think, was after the 2007 wildfires, he put in for reimbursement for fictional damage to property. Um, in order to do that, he had a co-conspirator, we can talk about later, uh, kind of create a, a, a construction company out of thin air that was a shell, uh, generate false invoices and false billings for work never done. The rabbi then uh, generated uh, backdated checks to make it seem like he had paid for them, submitted all that to the state and got uh, money reimbursed. Another one was uh, uh, taking advantage of um, as many of us know, uh, companies, corporations will match donations to certain charitable organizations. So mm -hmm. you 500, they'll, they have a program, they'll match that with 500 bucks, $1,000 goes to your college or, or the Red Cross or whatever it is, your kid's school. Uh, there were several people uh, who have not quite been charged yet and, and, and probably will be who work this uh, deal with their Fortune 5 hundred companies where they would uh, create documentation as if they had uh, made a sizable donation to the Habad and then go and show their corporate overlords, here's my $10,000 contrib charitable contribution. And they'd say, yes, we will match it. And they would match it 10,000, sometimes 20,000. That money would go to the rabbi uh, and he'd pocket it and give some to the, to the fake donor and pocket the rest. So I mean, you know, it, it, it was uh, there was a real estate fraud involved in there. I mean, there's just all kinds of ways, kind of a dizzying number of ways uh, that he was constantly on the grift for well, the charging document goes back to 2010. There's in, indications in them that say that uh, one of the person people who pleaded guilty this week has been doing this with him since the 1980s. So. Wow. Very long running and a lot of money and a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So do we know that this grift kind of started when the Chabad was founded? Is this just something that has been going on the entire time in small ways? Because I imagine that someone who is choosing to commit fraud, it's kind of the give a mouse a cookie situation in which it starts small and it grows and it grows and it grows. Is that what happened here? Hard to tell. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think it's something that he started doing in 2010. Uh, I mean, because it, it, you know, that would be unusual. And there is, 
uh, in the documents this uh, another co-conspirator, co-defendant, a guy named uh, Baker, Bob, uh, Bob Baker from um, La Jolla, I think, said he had been doing this with him since the 1980s. So at least the 90-10 thing, I think, has been going on for a while. Um, but does it go back? I mean, the Chabad was started in 1986. I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but I think it uh, uh, certainly predates 2010. Uh, and, you know, one thing that the prosecutors pointed out, too, was that uh, that I think is important is that, you know, you say he was the we say, you know, was he was a rabbi of Chabad of Poway. The the organ the instant the congregation did not benefit from this. I mean, this money did not go as far as they say and they can tell, at least in any serious way, uh, to the organization. Uh, the, I mean, he was using his position as the rabbi, as this community leader, as this figure of of authority and and uh, trust to run these frauds. But that money did not. It wasn't like he was saying, "Oh." you know, we got to paint the sanctuary, I need to like go do a grift. Um, that appears not to be the case, that this was all money that uh, that uh, went to, primarily to him. Mm -hmm. And one of the schemes involved gold? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> there's a lot of gold. Uh, yeah, there was this uh, one of the, in the 9010 uh, grift, uh, there was a, a donor who had, I, see if I can remember this off the top of my head, but in late 2017, somebody uh, who was, who was going to do this tax dodge uh, donated, I think, more than a million dollars or something to the Chabad. Um, and in order to kind of uh, mask that, disguise that uh, donation, the rabbi, I think, converted that to gold, to gold coins and gold ingots and things like that and, and gave it back to the guy. Um, that was interesting because in some of the documents, there's a lot of paperwork filed with this. I was just reading through it again today. That individual who has not yet been charged, uh, uh, if anything, a co-conspirator, not a defendant, um, you know, showed up at the rabbi's door at midnight uh, on the day in October 2018 after the federal uh, agents had served the search warrant both on the Chabad and on the rabbi's home. And it heard about this or been told about it by the rabbi and came to give him back the gold, you know. It, so you have this weird scene of this guy opening his door at midnight and some guy with a million dollars worth of gold. I said, take this back uh, to try, <laughs> try to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, it was too late, did not work. Um, the next, they, they say soon thereafter, the rabbi turned that money over to the government by then he knew that because they had searched his home that the jig was up and he was uh on the verge of cooperating with him mm -hmm. and when it comes to the investigation uh when were the first kind of cracks in the armor when did the feds start noticing that something was up yeah that was interesting we found that out yesterday they they began investigating him through a case that they have going against a guy named alex avergoon he pleaded guilty yesterday as well in a completely separate proceeding. Evergreen was under investigation for running a pretty substantial real estate fraud, uh, about $12 million. Uh, and uh, it's my understanding that in, in investigating Evergreen starting in 2016, I think, um, they began to notice uh, the 
investigators, when you get investigated by the federal government, you may do a thorough job. Um, we're looking through all these financials and the transactions and noticed a number of transactions dealing with uh, bot. Hmm. And that apparently is what said, okay, we got to go over and look. Um, the timeline there is important for a couple of reasons. It, it just shows that really this has been a long time coming that the investigation into the rabbi began long before the attack on the Chabad. So you're talking about 2016 or 17, early 17, and the tobacco attack on the Chabad is 2019. Uh, they had been investigating for a long time before in October of 2018, they, they served the search warrant that I referenced. So, you know, they, as often happens, you know, one case can kind of lead to another and it turns out that in kind of unpeeling all this stuff, Evergoon and uh, Rabbi were partners in a lot of these frauds. Uh, Evergoon recruited people to come and do the 9010 fraud or, or other kinds of things with the Bod. Uh, the rabbi worked with, with him and things like that. So they were, you know, if not partners, certainly associates in a lot of this. Mm -hmm. And do we know yet about the kind of broader intent or motivation do we know like what caused the rabbi to begin this grift well that's a and that is a great question because now given the events of yesterday and what we now know you really have sort of these two sides or two parts of the rabbi you have this uh the person most people know from the post shooting after the shooting this ebullient you know personality in some ways uh uh religious man, you know, religious leader. Um, uh, and the other side of him is what we've learned now, a very long time, uh, as I think uh, the U.S. Attorney said, you know, this was a thought out, methodical, you know, persistent, years long kind of fraud. So you have these sort of two sides of him. What was the reason that, you know, so there was nothing formally said about that. There is nothing in the court documents that indicate that. Rabbi didn't say anything, um, tried to talk to him after the plea, and neither he nor his lawyers wanted to say anything. I think they were kind of upset that there was some media there. Um, so it's an unknown. One can think, well, I mean, initially, as I've been trying to report this out over the past year, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe the Habad was really in trouble, and he was kind of doing these things to kind of keep it going, because we've been told that oh, it's always sort of uncertain fina financials there and things like that. Um, uh, then I, I was thinking, you know, maybe it's, you know, he's just kind of got roped into stuff and he didn't really in over his head or something. Neither of those, I mean, I, I don't think those are true. They've said that none of this stuff benefited the Abad. Uh, he seems to be a very sharp operator. I don't think anybody could dupe him. I, I guess you're left with greed. I mean, like sometimes, you know, Occam's razor. I mean, sometimes the simplest... Uh, answer is the best i mean people some people like money mm -hmm. and for reading the court documents are there any unknowns or holes that we're still waiting to kind of learn about when it comes to this scheme of grift yeah a lot i mean there's a number of people who are uh, they're not given mentioned by name but their initials are given in a lot of the supporting documents to the plea and i was going through it this morning i think i've counted about two dozen uh, these are people whose initials do not match any of the initials of people who have already pleaded guilty that we know have pleaded guilty this week. So I think, and, and you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office said that he's continuing to cooperate. 
the rabbi in unraveling a lot of this stuff, uh, and that the, there's still an ongoing investigation into this. So I think, you know, over the next weeks, may, months, maybe, who knows, um, you know, you're going to see more people come in on this, probably on the tax evasion and the tax fraud and maybe wire fraud. It depends on how extensive it is. Um, uh, but uh, there's definitely more shoes to drop. I don't know. And I'll have to see who it is. You know, I mean, uh, you could get some some pretty big players in reading through some of the documents. It kind of doesn't sound that way. But, um, you know, at this point, certainly the focus of this case is on the rabbi. But there's a lot more that's that's going to be coming through, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about what sentence he may face once this kind of goes to the courts? Well, that's a very interesting point. Um, so he has pleaded guilty, and this was a prepackaged plea. I mean, they, you know, he, he, and it's interesting. He signed his plea agreement in November 2019, eight months ago. Uh, and oftentimes it can take a while to kind of get a plea done, the guy in. But uh, that's a particularly long period of time. I had heard in the spring that all this was going to go down, that they were going to bring these people in and the rabbi in the plea guilty before tax day. You know, that was because it's kind of a big, you know, warning. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. So and the courts kind of, you know, they didn't quite shut down, but they certainly, you know, the lights dimmed. And I think that put everything on hold and kind of wobbled everything. Um, so, uh, uh, but they had worked out this plea. And part of the plea is his sentence. The prosecutors are going to say he should get essentially no, no time in prison, no custody time be put on probation or supervised release for a period of time. He's going to uh, kind of pay two and a half million dollars in restitution, and he has to continue to cooperate, which just doesn't mean giving information. If one of these guys or people decides to challenge this, if he has to testify at a trial, he has to do that. Hmm. So his sentence will be a non-custodial sentence. Um, at, at least that's the recommendation from the, from the prosecutors. Judges don't have to go along with that. Uh, almost all the time they do. Um, so, you know, he sent, he's scheduled to be sentenced, I think, in October. Uh, you know, and generally the big cooperator gets sentenced after everybody else has been taken care of. So if that's any gauge, maybe they think they're going to wrap this all up in the next few months. But um, he is not going to go to prison. And, you know, I mean, he's a 58-year-old man. Um, I don't know what his health is, but these days, you know, you probably don't want to be sending a whole lot of people into prisons. Uh, given the COVID epidemic, so he won't be going. But it's interesting uh, because if I could, I don't want to take up too much time, but that, that was an interesting point because at the news conference and in these court documents, you know, they really outline a very long running and, and a very methodical scheme of lying and mm-hmm. deceit and cheating and all these things. But it was what happened, what he did, and how he comported himself after the shooting. Uh, that uh, Brewer, the U.S. attorney, said really earned him a lot of mitigation, a lot of goodwill. And they took that into consideration when making the sentencing recommendation. And and my thing with that is like, okay, whatever. But, um, you know, at the time of the shooting, he was cooperating. He knew the jig was up. One has to ask how much of that activity he did after the shooting was sincere and how much of it was it percentage of it is like trying to kind of curry favor with the government so that he can get a lesser sentence. I mean, it sounds deeply cynical and very mean, but I mean, I think it's a legitimate question. They seem to be convinced that his conduct was sincere and he should be rewarded for that. 
I don't quarrel with that other than I sat in a room at the, at the Department of Justice building for 45 minutes listening to them say that this guy had been a serial fraudster for many, many years. I don't know if you if you rinse that out, you know, overnight. But. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess from like a restorative justice lens, given that this is material damages to the government and the IRS, you know, the net of harm isn't as bad as what John T. Harness did, of course. So if there's a way to kind of restore the harm, you know, he pays back the IRS, charitable contributions, I don't know what else, you know, it makes sense from that kind of perspective of how do we get justice in a way that effectively fits the crime here. But this is a lot of crime. Exactly. And it is. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, he didn't kill anybody and it's a white collar crime and, and no victims involved. I mean, maybe, but yeah, that's all true. I don't quarrel with that. As long as that's the consideration given to the next guy coming down the bike. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had a lot of courtrooms where it comes down to sentence and the defense lawyer stands up and says, well, ever since he was arrested, my client has done this and that and this and that. And he goes to churches all like that. And the prosecutors stand up and say, big deal. Yeah. yeah. So what? I mean, he was arrested. Of course he's doing that. That doesn't seem to be kind of the analysis being put here. Of course, these are extraordinary circumstances. But yeah, I mean, from a restorative justice perspective, fine as long as everybody kind of gets that same consideration. Mm-hmm. And going back to the congregation of Chabad, these are a group of individuals who experienced a hate crime. They lost one of their own. Members of them were injured. What's the response? What have you heard from them when it came to light that their leader was a fraudster? You know, it, they sent us some statements yesterday, both the Chabad of Poway and then the world headquarters in uh, New York, uh, the uh, Chabad uh, people sent us, where they said that they were shocked and dismayed. Uh, the statements were both very uh, condemned uh, the rabbi's uh, criminal action quite a bit. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, but also kind of said, look, this is bad, but the message and what we're about isn't uh, uh diluted or or shouldn't be obscured by this. We are still uh, a community of faith and a community of believers. Uh, and the message, even the message of the rabbi, who is now this kind of agent of, of notorious reputation for us now, but the message he was putting out is really who we are about and, and keep that in mind. So, you know, I think they were contrite uh, or shocked. Um, you know, the, the Habat said when they found out late last year that he was uh, involved in this, which is a long time after he had been popped. Um, they made him step down or they replaced him or whatever um, uh, as, as soon as they did. It's interesting, at the time they said, uh, oh, he's retiring because he's exhausted. Uh, he's probably exhausted from like having the federal government crawl all over him for a few years. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's what they said. So. They're, they're trying to acknowledge the harm and not try to paper over it, but try to emphasize, uh, I don't want to say the more positive, but, but the broader meaning and mission of, of who they are and what they're doing. And I think that's important to remember. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, zooming out kind of the 30,000 feet view, in covering this story, both from the tragedy of the hate crime and the frauds of Goldstein, what part of this sticks out to you as kind of what summarizes what's happened here? Because when you lay it all out, it just, it, it's ridiculous in a 
narrative sense it's like who wrote this but at the same time it's like you cover courts you've seen some wild stuff and on the other hand you're one of the most equitable people that i know so what is it like covering these insane events both from the perspective of hate and from white collar crime you know i think in some ways um you remember the same thing for both both sides of the story right both for Ernest and for the rabbi uh and i think it's important for court reporters to remember this when you're just covering mayhem and bad things all the time. And I, I try to do this to guide my reporting. I fail a lot. But, you know, all of us, each of us, are, are more than who we are on our worst day. You know, I encounter people in court on their absolute worst day, generally. Uh, that's true for the rabbi, who undoubtedly has done a lot of good and provided a lot of comfort and solace and leadership to many, many, many people. Um, and it's True also for John Ernest, who was a son and a sibling and a, uh, someone of who people thought well of, you know. It doesn't obscure what Ernest did and it doesn't excuse it and the same thing for the rabbi. But I think if there's one thing I could think uh, that really something up, it was in, during the court hearing yesterday, we were the only media there. You know, there always comes a time where you take an oath to tell the truth when you're going to plead guilty. And the rabbi did, and he held up his hand. And his hand, his right hand only has three fingers you know, because the, the index finger got shot off during the uh, uh, attack on August 19th. And it was a startling kind of thing to, to see. And I, I noted it in the story, and then I was thinking about it later, that in many ways, that's kind of what that story is about for him. He's holding up the hand. He was injured on the worst day of his life. Uh, the visible symbol of a, of, a, of a vicious attack on his very person, you know, the, who he is, just who he is, a Jew. Uh, and he's holding that hand up to plead guilty to admit all these bad things he had done. It just seemed to be, you know, a kind of metaphor in a way. Um, mm. That's kind of what I think. Yeah, certainly. And there's more to learn as this goes through the courts and we get more information and hear more about those individuals that were tied to it as well. Right. All right. Greg Moran, thank you for your reporting. You're welcome. In other news, the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club has canceled its racing program this weekend after 15 jockeys tested positive for COVID-19, the club announced Wednesday. Racing is expected to resume on July 24th, according to Del Mar CEO Joe Harper. All but one of the positive tests came from jockeys who rode at Los Alamitos over the July 4th weekend. All 15 jockeys are believed to be asymptomatic. In the outbreak countywide, another 559 cases were confirmed in the county, bringing the region's case count to 21,446. Since reopening in mid-June, many more younger people are testing positive for the disease. While they may be less likely to die, many long-term health impacts are possible from surviving COVID-19, including respiratory issues and the risk of stroke. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. As developments are coming in the world of baseball, our San Diego Padres podcast, Hot Lava, is back. Kevin A.C. and Jay Posner discuss the start of the MLB season, the Padres roster, and the challenges ahead for everyone in the sport. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. 
This podcast is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.